It's the anniversary of the assassination of John F. Kennedy, and I'm joined by Stephen Fagan, the curator of the Sixth Floor Museum. This is Today. Welcome to This Is Today, the podcast that features the stories that make this day unique. It's Sunday, November 22nd, 2020. I'm Russ, and here's what you need to know about today. Well, it is go for a ride day today, which means get out of the house. (laughs) You deserve it, right? You've been in this house forever. You get in the car, go for a little ride, and and make sure you have gas. Hopefully your car starts. I had that problem a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I got in my car for the first time and the battery was dead. (laughs) Uh, You want to start that every once in a while. (laughs) That's one of the uh, negative effects of shelter in place. Hey, I've got an amazing interview coming up with Stephen Fagan, the curator of the Sixth Floor Museum in Dallas. That is the Texas School Book Depository building where Oswald was when he fired those fateful shots at President John F. Kennedy. Uh, it's, it's an amazing interview and I want to make plenty of time for it, so I'll quickly go over some of the other events for today. In 1954, the Humane Society of the United States was founded. In 1990, Margaret Thatcher announced her resignation as British Prime Minister. Okay, the movie we all love, the movie Toy Story, was released on this day back in 1995. God, I love that movie. (laughs) In 2005, Angela Merkel became the first female chancellor of Germany. All right, so that's our look at the events for today, except for the big one. Uh, Back in 1963, on this day, John F. Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas. When we come back, we'll talk about that. On this day in 1963, President John F. Kennedy arrived in Dallas. Air Force One landed at Love Field to cheering crowds. The President and the First Lady, along with the Governor of Texas, John Connolly, and his wife, would be driven through the streets of Dallas. At 12.30, three shots rang out. Jackie Kennedy was said to cry, oh no. The motorcade raced to Parkland Hospital, where they began to treat both the President and the Governor. At 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, the president was dead. This was not announced to the press until Vice President Johnson left the hospital on his way to the safety of Air Force One. For years, people asked the question, where were you when Kennedy was shot? Today, we talk about where Kennedy was. He was on Elm Street in front of the Texas School Book Depository. That building is now the home of the Sixth Floor Museum at Dealey Plaza. Today, I'm joined by the curator of that museum, Stephen Fagan. He's also the author of a book called Assassination and Commemoration. Hello, Stephen. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's been nearly 60 years since the assassination. Uh, There are now kids of kids, a a third generation of people that are interested in learning more about the events of that day. I feel as though we need to first understand JFK. What would you teach future generations about the former president? It's, It's interesting that you mention that because when our exhibit was designed back in the 1980s, there was already this awareness that we need to contextualize President Kennedy so that that younger people can better invest themselves in his story by the time they get to the, the traumatic moments of November 22nd. Back then, two-thirds of our visitors mm. remembered the assassination. Today, mm. two-thirds have no memory, so it's, it's a 
increasingly important to contextualize what Kennedy stood for. Kennedy wasn't in office very long, and a lot of what he achieved was through his legacy, through things that Lyndon Johnson as president championed, like the Civil Rights Act of 1964. But Kennedy tapped into something uh, very special in American lives. He was the youngest president ever elected, the first president born in the 20th century. And from his inaugural address onward, he inspired people to become more socially active, whether it was uh, just through civic engagement, uh, becoming politically active, or doing something like joining the Peace Corps. Uh, he people around the world. And of course, he and his beautiful wife, this glamorous couple, really the first sort of celebrity presidential couple that we, we now see on a, on a regular basis. But they took the world stage and just captivated the hearts of millions around the world. Uh, so it, people look back on that now as this uh, sort of mythical notion of Camelot, which was created after the assassination, but it's still a good way of kind of tapping into the the beauty, excitement, and hope of, of that time, which for so many was extinguished right here on Elm Street in 1963. You know, so many people talked about this trip to Texas. It seemed like there was a lot of news coverage back then about this trip. Why was this trip so important for Kennedy? Well, in 1960, uh, we had a very close presidential election, which may seem hard to believe today, but it was a very (laughs) close race between John F. Kennedy and the Republican Vice President Richard Nixon. Um, Kennedy needed to shore up support in the South if he was going to carry the state of Texas, which he desperately needed in the 1964 uh, election. You know, he had Lyndon Johnson, the the native Texan, former Senate Majority Leader on the ticket with him. Uh The problem was the Democratic Party in Texas was split down the middle. We were already starting to see a move towards conservatism, mainstream conservatism in Texas. And so at that time, Texas, although it was a blue state, you had liberal Democrats and you had conservative Democrats, and they were deeply divided. Kennedy, knowing he needed Texas, this was to mend political fences, very much so. So he and Mrs. Kennedy, and it was the first time she had traveled since the death of their infant son, Patrick. So this was very much a big deal, the fact that she was accompanying him on this uh, important trip to Texas. They went to um, San Antonio, to Houston, to Fort Worth, Dallas, and then he would have gone on to a fundraising dinner in Austin that evening had the assassination not taken place. Dallas was the most controversial city on the itinerary because Kennedy was not popular in Dallas. In that 1960 election, Nixon had carried the city of Dallas by the largest margin of any major city in the United States. Dallas uh, was deeply conservative and there was a prominent fringe element of ultra extremists who would heckle visiting dignitaries Um, Lyndon Johnson got spit on and kicked when he visited in the last days of the 1960 campaign, just a month before Kennedy's visit in 63, our United Nations ambassador, Adlai Stevenson, was hit on the head with a sign and spit on. And so there was already this idea that, you know, Dallas, these people in Dallas, this is a hateful place. And the assassination just sort of solidified that negative impression. Mm-hmm. It was uh, it was unfortunate and an unfair characterization, blaming a small pocket of extremism in the city. But Dallas did uh, suffer a great deal in the aftermath of the assassination. I guess that's why there were so many people that 
really wanted this building torn down, the building of the assassination the, the, where you know Oswald was. People even tried to set the building on fire. Tell us a little about the history of that building. That's right. You know, uh, beginning the day after the assassination, the Dallas Morning News said that um, the Texas School Book Depository had become the most visited site in Dallas within 24 hours of the assassination. Wow. And a year later, they called it one of the world's most photographed structures. You can imagine that this did not sit well with Dallas leadership who saw Dallas yeah. as, as this um, dark, dark moment in the city's modern history and the Texas School Book Depository kind of looming there uh, as this manifestation of evil. So many, I mean, this was a physical representation of the darkest moment in the city's modern history. And so when the textbook distribution company moved out and the building was vacated, no one really knew what to do. A music promoter from Nashville owned it for a couple of years, <laughs> had some pretty ambitious ideas for a memorial center and a museum, a for-profit museum that he was going to run with a suite for himself up on the seventh floor. Um, <laughs> that did not come to pass. There was an arson attempt uh, in 72. He lost ownership. And then it was just sort of on the market. Someone could, with enough money, could just walk up and buy the Texas School Book Depository, if you can imagine that. <laughs> and it was at that point that a number of prominent community leaders like Tom Landry of the Dallas Cowboys or H. Ross Perot or even Mary Kay Ash of uh, Mary Kay Cosmetics. I mean, they vocally advocated wow. tearing down this building because they didn't feel like it was serving any purpose. Um, Kennedy never set foot in the building, they argued. Uh, he never even knew it existed. How could this become a museum dedicated to his life, death, and legacy? They were afraid that anything inside the building would be a shrine to Lee Harvey Oswald. And, and ultimately, it really came down to a single vote on the Dallas City Council to block demolition permits. They did it on a split vote. And that paved the way for the Dallas County government to step in. And they kind of stuck purchase of the depository in the middle of this great big bond package in 1977. And so before most voters even knew what they had voted on, suddenly Dallas County owned the building and they were dedicated to preserving it. Uh, what they did is kind of interesting though. They took the first five floors of the most infamous warehouse in Dallas and made it the seat of Dallas County government. So the commissioner's court is in the building, the civil division of the DA's office, uh, public works, they made it and a useful part of the community. And that I think was part of the redemption of the site. But recognizing that no one would wanna have their office in the sniper's perch on the sixth floor, there was this need, community need to respond to the Kennedy assassination, to internalize this dark moment in a respectful educational way. And that's where our museum had its beginnings. Uh, development for this exhibit really started the moment Dallas County bought the building in 77, but it wasn't until 1989, uh, just over 25 years after the assassination, that the sixth floor uh, exhibit finally opened. It was a very, very controversial development, but in the end, um, a number of community leaders, historians, researchers helped to craft an exhibit that really does explore the life, death, and legacy of President Kennedy in an unbiased way and gives people uh, the tools needed to kind of navigate that difficult context of 1960s American history. Yeah, the museum, I mean, I went there a couple of years ago, going through and looking at the legacy, the trip to Dallas, and then you land the sniper's perch. What I like is... The museum seems very organized. And then right after 
there's a little bit of chaos thrown in. Uh, you can go many different directions. You can learn about Lee Harvey Oswald. You can go. And what hit me when I was there was, wow, this is kind of like after the event. There was so much chaos in, in Dealey Plaza um, and throughout the world right after that. You had newsmen trying to learn from this and figure out what to do. And you had radio alerts and all these things happening throughout the world. Uh, so I, I feel like the, the museum does a fantastic job at that chaos uh, that happens afterwards. Was that intentional? It was absolutely intentional. I, I write about that at length in the book, that there was just this need to sort of try, try to replicate the, the chaos and the confusion that followed the assassination and kind of build that into the architecture of the space. So you do follow a very linear path where you are guided along from the moment we introduce Kennedy all throughout his presidency and the trip to Texas. And the moment you reach the sniper's perch recreated based on crime scene photographs, the exhibit really does kind of explode into chaos. There are multiple avenues of exploration. You can immediately go to eyewitness accounts and jump into the government investigations. You can follow the breaking news with Oswald and Jack Ruby in, in its own little alcove, or you can follow the Air Force One uh, back to Washington and be there for the funeral and experience all the mourning that took place around the world. So you really kind of choose your own path, but there's this moment of deliberate disorientation, I'll call it, which a lot of people don't pick up on or maybe even get annoyed by, but in the end, it was done deliberately, as you say, to, to sort of replicate the experience of that confusion. Everything is so detailed for that day, right? We know almost exactly to the minute what Kennedy was doing from that morning in Fort Worth and making some speeches to flying into, you know, Love Field. What we don't know is Oswald arrived at that building at 7.30 a.m. It was five hours till the assassination. What was Oswald doing in those last five hours? Do we know? Well, I can I can tell you a little bit about Oswald's day, uh, but let me actually go back a little bit further. We have an important artifact uh, on display on the sixth floor of the museum. It's actually just within sight of the sniper's perch. And it's one of my favorite artifacts on display. And it's very tiny, but it is infused with this symbolic significance. It's Lee Harvey Oswald's wedding ring. The night before the assassination, he went to stay with his estranged wife, Marina, at the home of a friend in Irving. He spent the night there, tried to get Marina to reconcile, to move back in with him. He offered to buy her a washing machine using some of their savings. She just rebuffed him. They had had a difficult relationship. Oswald had been abusive. Finally, he just gave up and he went to bed angry. And the next morning he let Marina sleep in. He got up, made himself some coffee, left that wedding ring uh, in a little teacup on her nightstand with most of their savings in cash. And he went to work with this package wrapped in brown paper. And so that little ring becomes kind of this uh, Rosetta Stone for understanding the psyche or mindset of Lee Harvey Oswald. For some people, it's, it's, it's a meaningless gesture, just a man who is giving his marriage. For others, it's the, uh, the act of man who knows he's never going to come home again. And so we have to consider when Oswald walked into the building uh, that day, he was in the midst of this disintegrating marriage burdened by a confused political ideology, working a very menial job that he felt like he was far too intelligent to do. He was a temporary order filler, basically going up and down the floors of the school book depository filling textbook orders. So that's sort of the Harvey Oswald that arrived here the morning of the assassination scene, walking into the building, 
with this package wrapped in brown paper. As far as his day, I, we really don't know that much about what exactly he did because his clipboard, which was found after the assassination, showed that he had not filled a single order that day. What he was doing in the building is left up to speculation. Oswald was last seen on the sixth floor about 35 minutes before the assassination. There's a lot of controversy about these eyewitness accounts, about the timing of when Oswald was seen, what floor he was last seen on. But we do have one depository employee who places him on the sixth floor 35 minutes before the shooting. We have three depository employees in the southeast corner window of the fifth floor, directly below the sniper's perch. And when the assassination took place, they heard the, this just echoing, almost like cannon fire. It was so loud and reverberated to the point where it shook loose dust and debris from the wooden floor and it was landing on their shoulders and their hair. I mean, it, that was how intense. And they could also hear the little ping of the metal shells as they were ejected from the rifle. So we have these people, these three men, these three African-American employees of the building who were directly under whatever was happening on the sixth floor in the southeast corner. Okay, so we know that Oswald was on the sixth floor at some point before the shooting, and then he goes to the lunchroom after the shooting to go buy a Coke from the Coke machine. When was the next time that he was seen? A Dallas motorcycle office named Marion Baker drops his motorcycle, runs in the building. Uh, he got the building manager, uh, the man who hired Oswald five weeks earlier, Roy Truly. They go up the stairs. Baker draws his gun. Oswald's the first employee he sees. And Oswald is just calm, collected, you know, uh, even though he's got a gun in his face. And Roy Truly identifies him as an employee of the building. So Baker holsters his weapon and they run on up the stairs. Oswald buys his coat and walks out the front door of the building within just a few moments of the assassination. And of course, from there, I mean, you know, he goes eventually gets arrested in the Texas theater about 90 minutes later, a Dallas police officer is shot in the interim JD Tippett. Um, but that's really what we know as far as Oswald's movements in the building that day. It's, it's left open to speculation, depending upon what you, what you think. If you think Oswald was a patsy, if you think Oswald was the lone gunman, or if you think Oswald was somehow part of an intricate conspiracy involving at least two or more people, uh, that kind of informs what you think Oswald was up to in the building that day uh, before the assassination. One of the things that I like about the museum, you actually cover all of the various conspiracy theories. I don't think there was a conspiracy theory that I could think of <laughs> that I didn't see uh, in the museum. You guys do a fantastic job. If you're going to talk JFK assassination, you have to bring up all of the various conspiracies. There's shooters in various spots. There's people in sewers. There's you know, whatever you can think of. There's a conspiracy about this. I know that the museum doesn't take official position on any of these, but is there any of these that you feel is the most probable? There is hard evidence linking Lee Harvey Oswald to the assassination. The rifle found in this building was traced to Oswald. His prints were found on the rifle. His prints were found in the sniper's perch. As mentioned, he had filled no orders. Right, so no orders filled. We don't know what he's doing all day. We've got the sounds of the shells and the explosions coming from the floor above. and. Plus, he had that package that was supposedly curtain rods that he brought in there that day. But the thing is, every aspect is controversial. The package. Only two people saw that package, and both of them described a package that was far too long to be the Mannecker Carcano even disassembled. Um, 
well, excuse me, the package would have had to have been longer were it the rifle. What I mean is uh, Oswald's co-worker who drove him to work and followed him inside the building at a distance. So he had a good view of Oswald in the package for quite some time because they parked pretty far away. He remembers Oswald cupping the package in his palm and having it tucked into his armpit. So basically running just the length of his arm. Well, that Carcano, when broken down, would have extended well past Oswald's shoulder. This isn't a dis difference of about you know, one or two inches, we're talking about half a foot in, in difference. And yet to this day, and this coworker is still alive, uh, Buell Frazier, he sticks to that story. He is absolutely certain the package he saw was too small to have been the rifle uh, being brought into the building. So you've got that. There are explanations for, of course, how Oswald's fingerprints ended up on the boxes. He worked in the sixth floor, on the sixth floor, uh, so he had every right to move those boxes around as part of his daily duties. Then you have the fingerprints on the weapon, which we could spend an hour dissecting, but it basically, in short, has to do with the fact that the rifle left Dallas, went to the FBI lab, they couldn't find anything. It comes back to Dallas. Turns out, oh, the Dallas Police Crime Lab had actually lifted a print of Oswald's before it was sent to the FBI. That's why they couldn't find anything. But we're going to reveal it after Oswald's dead a week later. And there's this chain of evidence that got broken as the rifle crossed state lines a couple of times. And for a lot of people, that evidence is um, unsatisfactory, to say the least. What I'm getting at is every piece of evidence in this story that maybe points to Oswald when you look at it this way. If you turn it slightly and see it through a different prism, it can tell you a completely different story. And uh, probably that is most prominent with the um, single bullet theory or the magic bullet theory, which even if you don't know much about the assassination, you've probably uh, heard of the magic bullet. You've seen Oliver Stone's film, maybe JFK, where he does the whole thing showing the bullet having to zigzag and stop in midair and turn directions. It's silly. Um, well, it's difficult for a lot of people to accept that this one bullet caused seven wounds between President Kennedy and Governor Connolly seated in front of him. And in the end, that little bullet, Warren Commission Exhibit Number 399, determines whether or not you believe in a conspiracy, because a maximum of three shots could have been fired from that bolt-action Carcano rifle found here in the building. And if a shot missed the car, wounding a bystander named James Tague on the cheek uh, some distance away, and one shot, of course, fatally struck the president in the head, that really just leaves that one shot, which needs to those seven wounds passing through uh, the, the lower part of Kennedy's neck, through his throat, going forward into Governor Connolly's back, exiting his chest, uh, puncturing a lung, uh, cracking a rib then going through the radius bone of his right wrist, then lodging in his left thigh. That's a lot for that bullet to do. Um, and yet, you know, physics tells us it's absolutely possible uh, when you put Kennedy and Connolly at the proper elevation, Connolly was several inches lower and further into the left. When you line them up the way they actually were in the car, there doesn't really need to be a lot of zigging and zagging for that bullet to go through those men. But in the end, I don't have an answer to the single bullet theory. There are a lot of people who believe it, but there are more people who don't. So most people believe in a conspiracy rather than Oswald doing the shooting on that day. From 1964 to 2020, we're 57 years after the assassination, never once has belief in a conspiracy among the American public dropped below 50%. It has always been above 50 
in the aftermath of Watergate and in the aftermath of the Oliver Stone film reaching the 80% levels of people believing in a conspiracy as we lose faith in the government and more of these sort of um, interpretations involving the CIA, the FBI, the mafia uh, come to light and start to gain traction more and more people believe it. Uh, I think where we stand right now, I think the last major Gallup poll was done at the 50th in 2013, and it it found over 60%. Yeah. Well, there's just so many um, options to, to believe in, uh, you know? <laughs> I mean. Well, yeah. And, and you know, we, and it's, a, it's a relevant topic to talk about because, you know, we have conspiracy as a major um, trending news story practically every day right now. And we, we can really look back to 1963. People call the Kennedy assassination the granddaddy of all conspiracy theories. And I think it did in many ways help to usher in this conspiracy culture, which uh, does in many ways overwhelm us. And it, it's interesting because in the 60s and 70s, it was very much kind of an underground movement that got very little mainstream attention. But as the years have gone on, conspiracy theories have become more and more um, mainstream. And there's all sorts of, you know, these psychological evaluations talking about why do people believe in conspiracy? And we can uh, sit here all day debating why. William Manchester in uh, his classic book, Death of a President in 1967, summed it up, I think, pretty well. Uh, if you look at it as a scale and you have John F. Kennedy on one end of the scale and Lee Harvey Oswald, this disgruntled ex-Marine on the other, the scales don't balance. And for our own sanity, just to believe in, in who we are as a people and as a country, we need those scales to balance. And a conspiracy really does help to even out the scales. I'm not sure that's the definitive answer to why people believe in conspiracies, but I think it's one way of, of looking at it. But let's talk about the museum and, and what's going on there right now with the oral history project. You, you mentioned uh, Mr. Fraser driving Oswald in to work that morning, and you've got him as a part of your oral history project. Uh, you've got so many people like that that were key in the assassination, but also people throughout the world that are contributing to the oral history project. Can you tell us a little about that? Yeah, th this project really started by accident and it's now grown to close to 2000 interviews. People come to this site. It's a site of necessary pilgrimage, and they want to share their experience. It's, it's a common experience. And so in the earliest days, back in 1989, we would go up to the civil division of the DA's office, borrow tape recorders used to tape depositions, and just record some of these on-the-spot memories from people who were moved by their visit to Dealey Plaza. And that formed the foundation of what evolved into a video oral history project that has been ongoing for many, many years with all of these recordings. And yes, it does, uh, it does of course, include eyewitnesses, police officers, media, Secret Service, uh, White House personnel, but it, but it takes a big step back to contextualize the 1960s. So we have a robust archive of civil rights activists, Vietnam War demonstrators and, and veterans and Peace Corps volunteers and NASA personnel, people that really speak to the legacy of President Kennedy and how he touched the lives of millions around the world. And a big part of what we do is a section of the oral history project that I'm very proud of, simply called Childhood Recollections. And that is anyone, anyone at all who remembers where they were that day in school, elementary school, junior high, high school, with that common experience of a teacher or principal coming over the PA, uh, informing them um, that the president had 
been killed. For many kids, it was the first time they had seen an adult cry in their life. Um, then they go home and absorb television for four straight days, the most television that the baby boomers had ever watched collectively. These types of experiences, while they may be shared at cocktail parties or across you know, the Thanksgiving table, uh, they're not being archived and, and not being archived in a global way so that sociologists or psychologists can access this rich material and really get to the heart of the commonality of the assassination experience. And we're building this tapestry of of living memory, we call it here at the museum. So anybody at all, whether you were in Wyoming watching As the World Turns, hanging up laundry in South Dakota, or getting a taxi cab in New York City, everybody has a story to tell. And believe it or not, we want to hear your stories. We want your voice to be part of this archive at the museum. So you can actually email me directly uh, at oralhistory, one word, oralhistory at jfk.org, and uh, you can participate in this project. And if I could go one step further and, and just take another moment, you mentioned the plaza and sort of what we're doing now. In this age of COVID, we've really had to rethink the museum experience. We are open, we were closed for about six months, but we're reopened at limited capacity like so many other institutions. But we, we recognize the need to sort of transition our core storytelling to a virtual platform. And so, um, just this week, we've actually launched a brand new interactive virtual guide to Dealey Plaza. And you can reach that uh, via our website. You can go directly to Dealey Plaza, one word, dealeyplaza.jfk.org. And that takes you to this remarkable platform, which is customized for desktops, optimized for smartphones, any device at all. You can reach it, you know, instantly sort of configure itself uh, to fit your screen. There's a guided walking tour of Dealey Plaza that you can do on site, or you can do it at home in your pajamas if you want and really explore the site of the assassination with narration. Or you can do something called Explore the Plaza where basically you can just click on all the buildings that you've seen in films and photographs and really dive into their history, their architecture, look at films and photos and really explore these buildings and find out what connections they have to Dallas history, to the assassination. We also have some, some interactive virtual storytelling that looks at the history of the Dealey Plaza site going all the way back to the founding of Dallas and the memorialization of the plaza, which leads up to the creation of our museum. So we're really excited about this interactive guide that just launched. And uh, I hope people will check that out because it's a great way of exploring the plaza when, um, as, as things are right now, you can't get in a plane and come down to Dallas and make that necessary pilgrimage. Oh, man, you, you know what? There might not be a podcast on tomorrow because now this is going to be my whole day. <laughs> that, that sounds fascinating. I'll, I'll, I'm checking that out tonight. I'll put a link to that in the description of the podcast so that uh, everybody can get to that uh, easily. Um, so uh, the museum is now open. If people are in the Dallas area or they can get to the Dallas area, how do they get tickets and uh, reservations? Is it jfk.org? Yeah, jfk.org is really the portal to uh, reserve your uh, timed entry to the museum because we are at limited capacity, uh, reduced capacity, I should say. Uh, you do have to buy your tickets in advance. It's a timed entry ticket. We uh, abide by all of the uh, COVID safety protocols with the hand sanitation stations and with the 
the six feet social distancing markers. Uh, we limit our elevators to one family or two individuals. Uh, so it's a very safe environment. Masks are required. Um, but I have seen people up there um, and, and they're appreciative of the, of the fact that they're able to get out and, and you know explore a little bit of their community or if they happen to be visiting family, it gives them a, a, a way of giving the kids a, a cultural history lesson. Uh, and it's a way for older folks, of course, to remember where they were on that day. So uh, even at reduced capacity, um, I, I think we're still uh, touching people's lives. I hope we are as we, uh, as we look ahead to our future beyond the 57th anniversary this year. Where can people get your book? Is that available on the website as well? Uh, yeah, you could, there's a museum store on the website. You can get it there. You can get it at other online retailers, of course, like Amazon. The book is really uh, similar to what we've been talking about. It's with the assassination, and it really chronicles the strange, colorful, disturbing uh, legacy of the Texas School Book Depository through these arson attempts and attempts to demolish the building. It just kind of goes through all of that, and it really is sort of a, a template for how a community so burdened by tragedy can learn to redeem itself, to internalize these moments of darkness and yet not shy away from what still hurts. Uh, I think it's kind of been a trailblazer in the way we explore our modern memory at sites like the Oklahoma City um, uh, Memorial, uh, at the site of the Murrah Building and the 9-11 Museum, uh, even the uh, National Civil Rights Museum uh, where Dr. King was shot in Memphis. Um, there are these sites stained by tragedy and violence that allow us an opportunity to do justice to these tragic events by remembering them properly. And so that's that's really what the book is about is an exploration of what do sites like this mean and how do they go from assassination to commemoration. And uh, there's some laughs in there as well. The orange bricks, uh, things like that. that, uh, <laughs> that yes, I, I won't spoil from. it. But, but yeah, it's amazing. Anything bad, anything controversial that could have... Uh, just imagine for a moment, folks, the idea of a subway bursting out of the grassy knoll. But you get a real sense of the danger that this site was in as people just simply would not accept it as history that needed to be forgotten. And we have shifted from memory to history. And I think we're all very grateful. There, there, there are some remarkable stories in there. And, and thank you for <laughs> someone's finally read it, which is terrific. <laughs> thank you so much. Hey, thank you, Stephen, for joining me. That was a fantastic conversation. I, I look forward to talking to you again at some point. Uh, let's take a look at our birthdays for today. Abigail Adams was born on this day in 1744. Billie Jean King turns 77 today. Jamie Lee Curtis is 62. Scarlett Johansson is 36. And Haley Bieber is 24. That's your look at November 22nd, a very special edition of our show. I know we went a little long, but I think it was totally worth it. Fantastic information today. Thanks for listening. And we do our best to pull together all the correct information. If we made a mistake and you heard it, you're super smart and we're super sorry. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give us a five star if you think we deserve it. If you'd like to make sure that we cover something on a future episode, let us know. Go to thisistodaypodcast.com to make suggestions, give us feedback, and see our other podcasts. Also put all the links from today's show on the website. I hope you enjoyed learning about today. I'm Russ, and I'll talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.